these are all things which mining companies need to communicate clearly and effectively to their key stakeholders. And that's really the best way to maintain the confidence in investors. Welcome to Deep Insights. I'm Richard Janssen van Vieren, online editor at Mining Review Africa. This week, senior deputy editor Chantal Kotze speaks to Tristan Puri, a consultant at pan-African consulting firm Africa Practice, about the political situation that has unfolded in Mali and the impact thereof on the regional mining sector. Before we join the discussion, it's important to note that since recording this episode, there have been a few changes and updates to the political situation that has unfolded within the country. Since then, a transition leadership has been appointed comprising Malian Defence Minister Ba Ngwa as transitional president, Junta leader Colonel Asimi Goita as vice president, and former Foreign Minister Mokhtar Uwani as prime minister. Sanctions that were imposed by ICAWAS on Mali in the wake of the military coup that ousted the president Ibrahim Boubacar Kaita have since been lifted. The transition is expected to last 18 months. Let's join the discussion. The country in the spotlights in today's conversation is Mali. Since early June, Mali has been embroiled in a deepening political crisis, which led to the ousting of the country's president, Ibrahim Boubacar Keita, on the eve of 18 August. Keita is, however, not the first Malian president to be asked in a coup. Tristan, can you start by giving our listeners some context on the political situation under which Keita was first appointed president and the political regime under his leadership? Hi, Chantal, and thanks very much for having me. So to answer your question, Keita became president following a period of, of heightened tensions in the country. So the government under Amadou Toure, the former um, president prior to Keita, had been experiencing rising unrest in the north of the country, which was predominantly being fueled by a Tuareg uh, rebellion. Those Tuaregs had, had joined forces essentially with, with jihadist militants operating in, in the region and were taking over large swathes of, of territory in the north. This, this was compounded by rising food insecurity in the northern marginalised regions. So it was really, uh, the government was dealing with a combination of, of factors of you know, security with political issues um, and uh, socio-economic factors. And these were all driving frustrations both within, within communities in, in the north, um, but also within the military which found that the, the government's response to the security crisis was inadequate. So in 2012, the military decided to, um, to take over the government and overthrew President Torre. And there was some degree of uh, tension between ECOWAS, which is the regional political administrative body, and the, uh, the military. There were certain elements of the military which were seeking to to hold on to power but a transition was 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 reached fairly quickly and the transition to civilian rule was was fairly smooth and uh, we can go into comparing you know that state of circumstances with what we're seeing today perhaps later in our discussion so Cato was really coming to power at a very volatile time he was facing a rising security crisis socio-economic issues so many communities particularly in the north but also in in the center of the country 
were feeling uh, cut off from basic services. They had very, very limited access to, to health and financial services. There were persistent levels of poverty in the country, despite the country having relatively robust economic growth around 5% over the last 10 years, which for, you know, um, for Africa to have you know, 5% growth over that prolonged period is, is fairly, fairly rare. But this, this growth was not inclusive. And, and all of this was made worse by the, the endemic corruption within the Cater administration and, and, and also um, the Toure administration, which was viewed as um, really holding back development. In terms of like where we are now, the issue has been that the Cater administration has essentially failed to address these fundamental issues. So since 2012, despite there being a pretty extensive international security presence in, in the country, the militant threat has, has spread quite substantially from the north now into the, the central regions of the country where jihadist groups are, are seeking to, to fuel intercommunal conflicts and really exacerbating inter-ethnic um, rivalries. There was a 2015 peace accord, uh, which was signed between the government and um, the main representatives of, of the jihadi groups. This has been poorly enforced and uh, essentially we've seen violations of this accord on both sides um, of the spectrum with uh, militant groups and the armed forces both committing atrocities. And that's really just served to fuel things. Poverty has also persisted. So, you know, if, if you look at World Bank figures um, regarding poverty in Mali, Essentially, it looks like poverty has, has slightly declined under President Cater, but see, this is a fairly difficult thing to analyse comprehensively, um, but a large degree of that has been down to uh, climactic factors, which have seen relatively robust agricultural production, rather than down to any sort of systematic policies on the part of the government. And the poverty rate has, has remained around 40-50% uh, since 2012, so it's still very high. And lastly, on corruption, the Cater government has been perceived to have failed uh, completely to address issues of corruption and nepotism within the administration. And you can see, for example, uh, President Cater's son, Kareem, has, has served as the chair of the Parliamentary Defence Committee for years and has recently stepped down under pressure from, from the broader public. And I guess lastly, the Cater administration really has suffered from a lack of continuity. So there have been... Uh, multiple prime ministers serving under Cater who have been forced to to step down uh, following public outcry over various issues relating to security and corruption, which has made it very difficult for, for Cater's administration to to really achieve any sort of policy continuity and also made it more complicated for international partners to engage with this government. So that's a summary of sort of the key issues that the population has has you know been dealing with. Um, under the Cato administration and gives a little bit of insight into why we are where we are now. You summed it up really nicely for me um, and you really unpacked how the political crisis really started in the country. But can we just touch a bit more on what really led up and what really happened in the run-up to the ousting of President Cato? Yeah, absolutely. So um, things really came to a head in around March, April 2020. In, in March, we had legislative, legislative elections taking place. 
and these were marred by irregularities. So immediately prior to the elections, the uh, main opposition figure in the country, Sumaila Sisse, was abducted by, I, I, I believe there's still unidentified militants or armed men. Um, I don't think there's still any clarity on exactly what's gone on there. Um, and it's, it's uncertain whether that abduction was sponsored by the government or not. But obviously that set the scene for a fairly controversial um, election. But it was really what happened after the election, which, which kind of sparked protest movement. So the constitutional courts amended results in, in multiple regions of the country to favour the ruling party. Um, and this was really the last straw for a lot of political actors in, in Mali. So in June, various opposition groups began protesting in the streets of Bamako, the capital, calling for reforms to the electoral code, first of all, which they viewed as being skewed in favour of, of the ruling party. And also they feared that, you know, this electoral code is going to prevent them from ever getting, making any headway in politics and ever getting it into power. These opposition groups were also calling for Cater to step down and for the establishment of a new political system where essentially you'd have a president who, whose influence was relegated um, and position was, was merely ceremonial. And in his stead, you'd have a, a prime minister with, with sort of greater executive powers um, who would be appointed by the opposition. At first, these protests were pretty sporadic and, and uncoordinated. Things really took a, um, a significant turn when Mahmoud Diko, who's a prominent um, imam in Mali, uh, emerged as a leadership figure for the opposition movements. Um, he, he's always been extremely popular in the country. He's essentially viewed as being external to the political elite and therefore sort of has the trust of a large swathe of the population who view the elite as being, you know, inherently corrupt. And despite his his um, connections to, to Islam, he, he was really able to transcend religious barriers and bring together lots of different opposition groups on one banner and really propelled the opposition movement forwards. He was engaged in regular talks with Cater, and it was around this time that once again um, became involved. So ECOWAS has always been very keen to uphold democratic values in the region and really wants to set a positive example for the region. So, you know, previously ECOWAS has stepped in when there was a coup in, in Burkina Faso in 2014 and in Guinea in 2008 and has taken a very strong stance on on upholding democratic institutions. So ECOWAS rejected the prospect of Cater stepping down and was working with, with um, political actors in Mali to try and establish a national unity government. But this was constantly being rejected by, by DICO and by the opposition. So things kind of reached a deadlock. And, and that's when the military obviously felt that it had to step in or, or saw its chance to step in. And a small faction led by Asimi Goita, who's a former spe uh, special forces soldier, marched on Bamako and, and overthrew uh, the government again. And this was initially met with, you know, um, widespread jubilation in, in the streets. And there was a lot of public support for, for the military leadership. And there are still hopes that this could potentially be a good thing for the country in the long term 
but it really boils down to how negotiations now proceed between ECOWAS and the military junta that's now in power, because ECOWAS is obviously pushing for a civilian um, a transition to a civilian government, and we can talk a bit more about that in a bit, um, about the, the complications around those uh, negotiations. Based on what you've said, it's clear that Mali is now in the throes of a period of deep uncertainty, uncertainty and volatility since the ousting of Keita. And this may spill over into the rest of the West African region going forward. But can you tell us what's really been taking place in the last month since the ousting of Keita and the dissolution of the government? It's been a period, as you say, of, of uncertainty. And what we've seen is uh, rising tensions between the military leadership and ECOWAS, but also between the military leadership and domestic political actors. So I'll, I'll begin with ECOWAS. So, as I said, ECOWAS has always been calling for a handover to civilian government, and that's consistent with its previous behaviour in coups in other countries. ECOWAS has also been pretty stubborn about this needs to be a 12-month transition and no more. So essentially they want civilian government and they want this done as quickly as possible. The junta has made relatively few concessions. So initially they were calling for a three-year military transition, which ECOWAS rejected outright. Um, ECOWAS then gave, gave the junta a deadline of the 15th of September to appoint a civilian leader to lead the transition. That deadline was not met and the junta released a, a sort of charter which it pushed through without much consultation with, with its partners in, in country. That charter called for an 18-month transition and also failed to specify whether that would be led by a military or by a civilian figure. ECOWAS and the junta held talks in, in Ghana and no solid agreement has yet been met, but ECOWAS has now issues another ultimatum to the junta and under that ultimatum ECOWAS has threatened Mali with a complete embargo by West African states if it does not appoint a civilian president by the 23rd of September. The junta has, has responded to this saying you know this isn't enough time we're not prepared to sign any official agreement with ECOWAS on this yet but according to spokespeople from junta they've begun process of selecting leaders for the transition. What's not clear is whether they're yet coming round to the idea of a civilian um, leadership or not. And then on the domestic front, tensions have also been rising in recent weeks. So even though the coup was met with um, jubilation in Bamako initially, communication between the junta and the opposition movement has not been optimal. So the, the opposition movement was not actually invited to a lot of the initial political talks in the country, which sort of sow tensions from, from the outset. There have now been talks between the junta and the opposition movement, but the, the opposition has, has basically said that these haven't been very consultative. They've been held in an atmosphere of, of intimidation on the part of the, the junta. And the opposition movements also call the junta's transition plans um, a power grab. Essentially, we're now at a pretty critical juncture in these negotiations where ECOWAS wants to uphold democracy um, and set an example. But at the same time, ECOWAS, I should have mentioned earlier, ECOWAS has imposed sanctions on Mali and uh, closed Mali's borders with all neighbours. So it's, it needs to uphold democracy, but it also doesn't want to punish ordinary Malians with prolonged sanctions any more than it 
has to. But at the same time, you've got a military junta, which doesn't seem to want to cede, cede power to a civilian government, or at least is being very vague on the matter. And in doing so, the junta is now risking losing the support of the opposition and of, of, of the broader population. So ECOWAS leaders are actually due to meet again with the junta to try and resolve these outstanding issues. But we're, I think, looking at two main scenarios here. One is there will be a military-led transitional government, and that could see Mali become increasingly isolated, both diplomatically and economically, from the international community. Or there will be a civilian transition, which would allow the country to start to, to reopen gradually. We hope you have enjoyed the discussion so far. We will continue our conversation with Tristan after this short message. It will never be the same. The new normal is business unusual. At Mining Review Africa, we want to partner with you to ensure that your brand is still visible in these unprecedented times. That's why we're offering you a bouquet of digital marketing choices to ensure that your company is still top of mind with your clients. This includes podcasts, partner profiles, videos, and webinars. Want to know more? Click on the Engage tab on miningreview.com today to find out how we can give you more bang for your digital buck. Welcome back to Deep Insights. We're in conversation with Tristan Peary from Africa Practice on the impact of the political situation in Mali and the country's mining sector. Let's rejoin the conversation. Taking forward what you mentioned earlier about ECOWAS and the imposed economic sanctions that they've put on Mali following the coup, um, can you possibly unpack how this could impact on the already deteriorated security situation in the country and some other challenges that these economic sanctions may have on the country as well as the mining sector in the country? In terms of security, the sanctions aren't going to have a uh, a fundamental impact on, on the security landscape, at least in the short term, because the international community has remained um, very engaged in the country. So the sanctions essentially prohibit ECOWAS countries from trading with Mali. They prohibit the movement of imports and exports, but international security and development partners are still operating there. And the sanctions still permit the movement of, of you know, of uh, crucial humanitarian goods. My view is that security partners are really keen not to jeopardize the security of the country in any way. And they also crucially want to avoid a spillover of um, militant violence across the poorest borders in the region. So the UN peacekeeping force, uh, known as MINUSMA, has maintained its, its forces in the country. France, which has also been the kind of leading international partner on the security front, has said it will continue with Operation Barkhane, which is it's, they have over 4,000 um, troops stationed in, in Mali conducting counterinsurgency operations. Also Germany, Britain and other key European players have said they'll be staying in the country. The military leadership has also said that it will continue to cooperate with security partners and Goiter, the, the leader of the Junta, as a former Special Forces senior commander, has pretty extensive ties with the international security community. So in many ways, the security landscape, you know, is still very much supported by international partners. On the other hand, the EU as, as an entity has temporarily paused its operations, as has the United States. I think they're, they're waiting for slightly more clarity over how things are going to evolve. You also have the 
possibility that a prolonged military leadership could result in in high-ranking officers being pulled from the field and installed in official government roles and and this could potentially have a negative impact on on the capacity of the army on the ground to respond to threats and we also can't forget that the disenchantment within the military hasn't gone away so even though having a having a military leadership may serve the military better in some ways that they're still suffering from a real lack of resources and training and capacity so i'd say we're not looking at any sort of drastic changes in the short term in terms of security but there are these few issues to be aware of in the longer term so you also asked about the impact that sanctions could have on uh, the mining sector i think that's an interesting question just to kind of give a high level um, overview of, of what's going on in mining in mali it's Gold in particular is is a crucial strategic commodity in the country. It accounts it accounted for almost 10% of Mali's GDP in 2019. So far, it looks like companies in, in Mali haven't been too adversely impacted by the recent political uncertainties. So you've seen big players like Barrick saying that you know their their key asset, the Lulu Guncoto mine complex, is has continued operations. Also, B2 Gold has announced it will actually be boosting its production in Mali at the Fikula mine. You know, there are large players who are pretty confident that they can continue to operate. But there are obviously various factors here which could undermine the sector in the long term. So the, the immediate reaction uh, from all of this was, was a drop in share prices. I think these figures may have slightly changed since, since I last checked. But I think Ashanti lost 4%, Barrick lost around 3% on its shares so uh, resolute mining was almost 12 percent. so some companies have been pretty pretty harshly hit initially you've also got the logistic logis- logistical aspect of this so closure of borders and and imposition of sanctions is going to potentially have long-term negative impacts on imports exports supply chains so far the major operators like barrick have said that they've got adequate resources to continue to operate despite the um, the border closures. Another thing to be thinking about is policy and operating environment and what potential impacts this could all have on that and on, on operators' ability to actually function in the country. So far, it looks like there have been no substantive changes to policy or regulation, and it doesn't look like the military leadership has any immediate any immediate plans to make any changes. I think what we need to do is think about the prospect of prolonged sanctions and what impact that could have uh, on the mining sector. It seems to me that investors have already shown that they're pretty hesitant um, to engage fully and prolonged sanctions would only undermine investor confidence further. The prolonged imposition of border closures would also severely undermine operations, especially if a full embargo was put in place, which ECOAS is now threatening to do. I think this could cause major supply chain disruption and may see export routes and logistic lines become paralysed. And while many companies do have sufficient resources to continue operating in the short term, the medium to long term, they risk burning through those resources. On the policy front, military leadership uh, could potentially seek to obtain a greater interest in the mining sector through uh, increasing its stake in, in key assets. I, I'm not sure if this is a tricky one because the military, if, if there were to be a military leadership, they could potentially seek to incre- increase their stake, but they also will want to avoid alienating 
investors and will understand that that the gold sector is a is a key strategic sector. So my impression is that whether it's a military or civilian leadership, they won't want to jeopardise the country's main source of revenue. And we also have to remember this is now the second coup in Mali, and this is potentially going to contribute to an overall drop in investor confidence as investors increasingly see this country as 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 a sort of you know troubled child. Based on the situation that is currently unfolding in Mali, um, what can the mining industry do or what advice would you give to the mining industry to ensure that their investments in the country are actually safe? And what can they do to bolster their existing shareholder confidence in the country while all of this is unfolding? I think um, the main thing is communication because when, when you're living through a coup and the aftermath of a coup, the uh, information environment becomes extremely complex with various narratives being thrown about. It can become very difficult to corroborate exactly what's happening on the ground. I think the main thing that mining companies need to be doing is, is ensuring that they are not necessarily uh, reassuring investors, but just communicating facts on the ground and keeping, you know, things, things are changing in Mali literally every day at the moment. And we, as I said earlier, we're at a critical juncture where um, it's not by any means certain whether we're going to have a military leadership for the you know, foreseeable future or a civilian leadership. And it's not certain what form either of those leaderships will take and who the key stakeholders will be um, and what the potential impact could be on as I mentioned, on, on the policy and regulatory environment. So these are all things which mining companies need to communicate clearly and effectively to their key stakeholders. And that's really the best way to maintain the confidence in investors um, or of investors that, you know, executives at these companies really have a good grip of, of what's going on on the ground. So I think for me, that, that's the main, um, the main issue. And now, as we reach the end of today's conversation, I just have one last question for you. And that is whether you expect the volatility in Mali to spill over into the neighboring West African countries. Because the government in these countries may also be in somewhat of a precarious position, with some of them scheduled to still hold elections this year. So I just want to see if there may be any effect um, in the broader West African region based on what has been going on in Mali. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So at Africa Practice, we, we have a very close eye on, on the fluid political and security dynamics in the region. The region is experiencing uh, heightened tensions at the moment um, as several nations are preparing to go to the polls and as several leaders are seeking to hold on to power beyond their constitutionally mandated uh, terms. So I think if we just break it down into security and politics so on, on the security front violence in Mali has already spilled over into predominantly into Burkina Faso and into Niger both those countries are um, experiencing increasing levels of insecurity Burkina Faso where I've spent a fair bit of time um, has been seeing a pretty exponential increase in attacks since about 2015 and that's really down to the poorest borders it's very very difficult to to monitor and control uh, the movement of, of both people and, and illicit um, materials in, in, the, in the region. I think that the, the coup in Mali 
does risk exacerbating that. So we've already seen an uptick in attacks in Mali um, since the coup happened as, as various groups have, have sought to exploit the, the political chaos. But as I said earlier, the international community is still very much engaged in the country. So it's, it's slightly too early to say exactly what impact this could have, but there is certainly a risk that prolonged political chaos, perhaps a breakdown in, in sort of military chain of command and, and reduction in military capacity and potentially a drop in commitment from some international partners could see greater spillover into neighbouring countries. We're also seeing increasing issues in the coastal nations. So, you know, looking at places like Benin, Togo, Ghana, some of these countries are starting to see sporadic, not large scale attacks, but kidnaps and, and small scale operations um, from small cells operating in those countries um, who've been able to cross borders. So it's very much becoming a regional security issue now. And I think there's growing, there's growing awareness among those coastal countries that they also now need to, to play a role in, in keeping a lid on this. From a political perspective, it's, it's quite interesting because I think you need to look at each country's idiosyncrasies individually. So you've got Burkina Faso, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, Guinea, uh, Niger, all these countries are going up for election uh, this year and are experiencing their own uh, specific tensions. In Burkina Faso, you've got elections in November. The country does have some similarities with Mali. You've got you know, insecurity spreading in the country. You've got marginalised communities in the north and the east. The opposition is becoming increasingly united in Burkina. But in my opinion, there's not the same degree of anti-government sentiment in Burkina as there is in Mali or as there was under Keita. And there's also no mass protest movement in Burkina, which has a, a single you know, leader who's capable of, of seriously disrupting the political landscape in the country. I think that political tensions in Burkina will keep growing as the election approaches, especially as there's many communities in conflicts affected areas who may not be able to vote in the election. So that's a potential source of, of, um, of tension. And those groups may be emboldened by what's happened in Mali. Similarly, in, in Cote d'Ivoire, President Ouattara has decided to run for a third term, having promised that he wouldn't. And that's really sparked violent protests uh, across the country. And there are now growing fears that there could be a repeat of the post-election violence, which took place in 2011, and which plunged the country into a pretty deadly civil war. And again, it's possible that opposition sentiment will be fueled by what's happened in Mali but it's a little bit early to tell I think and there's a similar situation unfolding in Guinea where Alpha Conde has also decided to run for a third term and has sparked a lot of opposition violence so essentially as you say it's very volatile time at the moment just because this has happened in Mali, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to have a huge amount of political violence erupting across the region. But it's certainly worth bearing in mind that tensions are mounting in the region and that the situation in Mali could play a role in fueling political tensions. In terms of the long-term outlook, both for Mali and for the region, I think it's important not to try and look too far ahead at the moment because we're still very much in the midst of, of negotiations uh, regarding how the transition is going to look. But I think the key takeaways are that um, all stakeholders need to, be, need to be prepared to 
adapt because um, as I said, it's very uncertain how things are going to unfold and a military leadership in Mali is going to have drastically different implications for uh, political stakeholders, for civil society, for private sector stakeholders, both in Mali regionally and in fact globally. So my sort of two cents would be that all stakeholders need to remain adaptive in the current environment, um, remain as up-to-date as they possibly can on how events are unfolding. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to our weekly podcast, which is available on all popular podcast platforms. Give us a five-star rating and share deep insights with your social network. Also, log on to miningreview.com to access our webinars, videos, industry insights, and the latest mining news. Until next time, goodbye and stay safe.